0: Welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? How can we make everything better? Particularly relevant question this week, which we'll probably get to at some point, but I'm very excited to have our guest on today. Before I introduce her, I want to make sure to introduce the other panelists. So besides me, Richard Littower, we have Eric Berry and his dog. Eric, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good. Today, I've got my dog in my arms for the whole podcast. It's going to be like a nice, soothing, comfort cast.
0: And it's the most adorable thing ever. I'm sorry you all can't see it. Oh, listeners, Justin Dorfman, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Richard. How are you? Good. And our guest today is Emma Irwin. Emma joins us today from her home on Vancouver Island in Canada. She works in the open source program office at Microsoft. Emma, how are you? I'm doing great. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So you work at the OSPO at Microsoft. This is a fairly large OSPO comparatively in the sense that most OSPO's are run by one or two people. And when I say OSPO, I mean Open Source Program Office, right? This is the center of the organization that sort of deals with all open source questions, paraphernalia issues, (laughs) so what have you. What do you do at Microsoft's OSPO?
2: First of all, like, one of the most important functions of the OSPO is to think about licensing compliance, or a lot of people associate OSPOs with that piece. And that's definitely the roots of any good OSPO is getting that right. And then the place that we're kind of at, at Microsoft is thinking about the culture that we're building around open source as well. You know, it's the mechanics and the compliance piece, but it's also the human piece. Do people understand the invitation to grow communities around their products? Do they? have that personal accountability for their footprint in open source projects that we use? Do people collaborate internally and does that show externally and what we understand about good stewardship in open source? So to answer your question, <laughs> my role is really about driving that culture and, and creating an environment where people understand that invitation and the responsibility and opportunity.
0: Awesome. I mean, it is one of the main issues of open source, right? A lot of people work on open source for their company and sort of have free time or time dedicated, which is paid to work on it. And then a lot of open source people aren't paid and they just do it as a volunteer thing or as a hobby or as a vocation, or in some case, a torture device that they use (laughs) to lock themselves to a chair for a few hours every night. So how do you manage for such a large company as Microsoft? How do you make it not seem extractive to do open source? How do you make it inviting for people to come and volunteer their time to work on Projects which are sort of housed by Microsoft or what Microsoft is involved in?
2: We have specifically, at least on our team and at Microsoft, a goal of encouraging Microsoft employees to contribute to open source. So that's as much a goal as funding. There's lots of ways that we fund open source or, you know, are part of foundations. But so to answer your question about how do we bring people into that? So it's a challenge, certainly in a big organization. And I've only been there since October. So a little bit, I'm still figuring that out. But I really believe that. And my experience at Mozilla, where I worked before this, was like bringing people together around uh, specific topics, allowing people to like learn a thing, but also collaborate and chat, come together around shared pain points or opportunities. And then it's as important as kind of like the tactical piece or the education piece. So internally, I'm running a series of workshops that basically help people understand open source. So one of those is a code of conduct enforcement, which is all about building diverse and inclusive communities. Another is about contributing on behalf of Microsoft. And Stormy Peters, who I think was on the show, she'll talk about how there's a strong culture of ownership at Microsoft. Like people are like, I've built this thing. I'm the one that should take care of it. If someone has a problem, I should fix it. So helping people understand it's okay to build community. It's okay to invite others in and how to grow projects. So I'm running this series to connect people around those problems and so that they can, in the spirit of open source, collaborate on the solutions and problems that they're experiencing. Also, you mentioned that, There's employees who are paid in open source, and those are not, and volunteers. And so a large part of how I try and frame open source is that we're all colleagues. A lot of people think about, for example, Code of Conduct Enforcement about communities. It's about employees or the paid person enforcing a certain type of culture. People try and draw a line around those two things. When it's in actuality, if it works well, it's fluid. We're colleagues, we're collaborators. So I try and keep that framing as well.
3: So you bring up funding and I know that you have implemented the thing that Indeed has kind of pioneered from Dwayne O'Brien and his ospo at Indeed, obviously. And how are you using it in your organization? Are you involved with it or do you have another team that's involved with it? Can you go more into that?
2: Yeah, so actually, I run the Foss Fund program inside of Microsoft, which is the the program that you're mentioning that came from Dwayne O'Brien and indeed, and there's other companies that we collaborate with on what how does this work? I think one of them is also Salesforce, and anyways, there's a couple others as well. And so, what the Foss Fund is, every month we collect nominations from employees and run basically an election to decide who Microsoft should give ten thousand dollars to every month. That's basically three goals of the FOSS fund. There's to fund FOSS. So we award a fund of $10,000 every month based on the most voted for project. The second is to raise awareness about what open source projects we're using at Microsoft. So to create that awareness that we're building on the work of others and we rely on the work of others. And this is one way we can fund it. And then the third is around contribution. So in order to vote for the FOSS fund as an employee at Microsoft, you must have contributed to open source in the last four to six weeks. So there's a qualifying piece there. And so that's pretty exciting. So we just launched our FOSS fund for March yesterday. And so we had over 3,000 employees qualified to vote because they have contributed in some way to open source in the last four to six weeks. And that just represents what we can track on GitHub. So there's also another parallel thing that I'm trying to... Because that so it's easy to track mechanically or through an automated process. So we're also trying to capture those other types of contributions. That So we also have a self-attestation part. I sit on a board or I enforce the code of conduct or I write docs so that people can also teach Microsoft about the things that we're doing that are not on the radar. So it's kind of multifaceted in the way that we hope that it can support open source.
3: So it promotes inclusiveness because it's not just about the code, it's about the community. I think that's a lot of companies overlook that. They think, oh, I'll just throw some developers on it and that's it. I like to hear that, especially from Microsoft, who's just a leader in this space, which is so weird because 10 years ago, that just wasn't the case. So it's just cool. And one other question is how big is the OSPO? Like, How many people are working in it? And is it involved with other business units, GitHub, or is it completely separate? Can you kind of go into that?
2: So I think there's five of us on the OSPO right now with different roles. We definitely collaborate across different problems and opportunities within the organization. We work across the organization. So I recently, I can't remember where I read this, so I hope I'm not stealing anyone's exact description of a good OSPO. But a good OSPO doesn't live in any part of the organization. It traverses and works with organizations and teams across it. So some people will ask you, where is the OSPO? Is it in the office of the CTO? Or is-? It doesn't really matter. So, and to answer your question, so we try and work with everybody, which is an interesting challenge inside uh, Microsoft, but there's lots of open source people. And I've been really struck by the expertise that I keep running into in the company. So there's lots of allies that we work with. As far as GitHub goes, yeah, I mean, we definitely collaborate with GitHub and share best practices and, and you know, hubbers can nominate for the FOSS fund and that kind of thing. So we're definitely parallel allies.
3: Did you just say Hubbers?
2: Yes, that's the internal term. I think ah. uh, that could I could be wrong because I could be wrong. So I hope I haven't.
3: No, no, because I've heard GitHubbers. Oh, maybe. Hubbers is, I like that. A sustained podcast exclusive. <laughs>
0: <laughs> One of the things that strikes me as you're talking about all these different areas that you touch is that you're not just touching them internally, you're also touching externally. And you're really involved with the whole idea of ecosystem thinking, particularly because Microsoft has such a huge role to play in the open source world right now, but also because the FOSS responders is really an ecosystem level thinking. It's about giving back to the community by having people vote, where should money go that we can give to open source projects that need it? One of the things I'm wondering is, there's a lot of corollaries I'm seeing between volunteer management with NGOs, and like trying to basically coordinate large groups of people who you sort of have under your belt and you sort of don't and trying to manage without managing. And I'm wondering what your opinion of that framing might be for dealing with open source communities. Yeah. And so how do you best build communities that enable people to thrive in that environment? And mm-hmm. how do you do it in a way that's not totalitarian?
2: I think and I teach that you really have to be mindful of who it is that you want to engage as part of your open source projects. A lot of people like, and this is not Microsoft specific, will release an open source project and you'll know, maybe, now I grow community, but it's really important to articulate who it is you want to engage around the product and that might change over time. So for example, you might be releasing an open source project because you want to understand who your users are and what their needs might be. Or maybe you just, you're looking to build more of a fan base that's willing to test new things and, or maybe you really want contributors, like your capacity to scale what you're building is different. And so The types of communities that you build around each of those types of engagements are different. So another one would also be like ecosystem. Are you trying to find partners? So how you would engage people, first of all, would be different around those because each of those will have different motivations. So for example, if you're looking to have contributors, you really need to think about the value exchange for someone to come and contribute code. If you're trying to engage ecosystem partners, is there a shared problem you want to talk about? And so you might create calls where you like, bring in people around topical areas that everyone's working on. So in AI, for example, that might be ethical AI. You want to bring people in around that problem space. When I was at Mozilla, we definitely saw that there's different types of communities in this realm as well. So we have had something called mission-driven Mozilla to describe that there's lots of different things folks would do to help Mozilla. And they might be the same person. We might have the same person contribute code who also hosts an event, who also goes and speaks at a conference. So just to summarize, it, first of all, thinking about what type of community you're trying to build is really important. And then just from a lens of success, thinking about how you're going to make sure that everyone is included and feel safe. So especially for underrepresented folks and marginalized folks in open source, which is still less diverse than tech overall. Thinking about how people recognize the space you're building as safe is super important.
1: I really like that. Can you elaborate a little bit on the safety issue that you brought up? I know Mm. that you wrote an article, I think last year, called Weaving Safety into the Fabric of Open Source Collaboration. Yeah, you did. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: So that work was done kind of back in the topic area of of recognizing that there is not a fluid line in open source between employee or paid staff and contributors. Mozilla, Microsoft Projects, any open source project that is engaging people that are not part of their organization are intentionally blurring those lines, which means that it's really important to build in that education internally around code of conduct enforcement. And that's what that work was at Mozilla. So I built the processes for responding to Code of conduct Enforcement, which were mechanical, as in you report through this hotline and we will get back to you, but also working groups that comprised of security experts, InfoSec folks, people team, HR, myself and others who each had a different type of skill set that people might need in emergent situations like being heavily trolled or doxed on the internet. So that blog post and work was all about creating an end to end program to ensure that both staff and volunteers felt safe, but also understood their role. So it felt safe because they knew they could trust Mozilla to, to keep them safe, but also that it wasn't lip service, which a lot, you'll see a lot of in open source. It, we had those, this program was set up to make sure that we acted according to the level of severity and followed up.
3: So you bring up code of conduct. I mean, I'm guilty of this as well. I copy and paste the code of conduct.md and I put it in my repo. Honestly, I probably read it once. At Mozilla, how many incidents did you experience a year?
2: I forget the, the number. I think as our enforcement became clearly something that people could depend on, we had less of them, so it's also a signal when people see that actions are being taken. I can't remember the exact number, but the percentage there's about 30% of the cases that we we handled were you know significant enough that we had to trigger HR to make sure a staff member was okay, or info security to make sure like somebody was receiving something threatening that we could monitor their email. And it, it happens a lot in open source. And I actually, find that it's more invisible when you don't have those processes. Once people know they're there, you can get more visibility into what's actually happening. Hopefully it's getting better, though, across the ecosystem.
3: Yeah, I think there are more folks that are aware of them and also that Mozilla and others are taking action, especially in the browser space with Firefox and Chrome, the competition and not implementing certain standards. Some developers can get very hostile. Do you see any projects that get more kind of hate than others?
2: I don't know if the answer to that is yes, I feel like it might be, but I'm not entirely sure. I think some of the well-organized projects, the .NET project at Microsoft, the group that runs that is extremely good at running community, and I really haven't heard a lot coming out of there. So I'm not sure if size or even competition results in angrier types of trolls. I honestly think that the instances where there's more challenging situations come because somebody is a visible Minority or women engineers, black engineers, just people that are targets on the web. In my experience, they receive more based on that than the technology they're building. And that's just a sad truth, right? And that's why these enforcement processes are so, so, so important because it's not just about laying down a law or a lot of people claim that their behaviors are being monitored or there's, it's really about ensuring that those that are most threatened on the web most marginalized, feel safe and supported. And we have a long way to go in that area, to be honest.
0: This is being recorded on March 26th, so this will come out sometime later. But this week has been very interesting for that reason, for another event, which I could tell by your expression, I think you know what I'm about to ask. Richard Stallman rejoined the SFF board. It's unclear whether the board wanted that to happen or not. It came out really weirdly, but now they didn't not condone him for a while. They didn't um, say this isn't right for a while. So now it's mm-hmm. kind of pretty clear that they're not taking a stance on it. Cat Walsh has already resigned. So there's yeah. already effects that are happening as far as what's happening with the SFF board. For those of you who you know, are unfamiliar, RMS has been a huge voice in the industry and also has been a massive violator of code of conduct and has personally helped steer people away. From communities, and so this is a really good example of a large mover in the space failing to meet code of conduct standards and failing to do what's best for their communities as a whole. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. I, I'm going to leave that vague because I, I don't want to have to put you into a corner or anything, and I, I don't know how much you're willing to talk or whether Microsoft yeah. is. But I well, if you have any thoughts on, I- on that whole thing.
2: Yeah, and hopefully we'll see how articulate I can be because of the history of open source as a homogenous place for people like Stallman to just treat people however they want to because they're in this sort of like rule of power. And I mean, that's the history of open source, right? That's meritocracy. The idea that anyone can do anything like the four freedoms, that if you just open it, then it's inclusive and anyone can participate is complete bullshit. But it is. I mean, it, it was. And that's why open source is still less diverse than tech overall. And Stallman is like a dinosaur, in my opinion, of that era. And I was super shocked to see that he was able to be reinstated, but to just so boldly go and just say himself, I'm back, I'm not leaving. So that was both angering and scary that there's still pockets where that's possible. Honestly, and that the board, I mean, for me, it's bananas or bonkers or whatever word that they would put themselves in that position is just so, you know, that letter that's come out recently that a lot of people have signed was predictable. The idea that we're still in that era of dinosaurs that can do whatever they want and say really horrific things that are not just violations of the code of conduct, but like human rights, disgusting types of homophobic and all the categories of that is just. I'm still trying to catch my breath over it, but I feel really good about the response. And I'm sad about the dinosaur. Maybe that organization is just legacy code as far as open source goes, right? And we're just rewriting it now. It's just the last bit of legacy code.
0: Well, I'm sad um, about the dinosaurs too, but I'm pretty happy that I exist as a mammal because we (laughs) survived, so.
2: Yeah, and there's lots of good, we didn't get to where we are now and where we're going without people that were the beginning of this open source recognizing their role and moving forward. And just some folks didn't. But yeah, we'll we'll see where it goes. But it's it was super disappointing. And especially with all the progress that we've made.
0: Well, what I'm happy about is that the letter exists. So this is you yeah. know, RMS open letters asking the board to step down. I'm happy that so many people signed it. I'm happy that it's been such a huge outcry. And I'm happy that people like you are training people how to deal with this sort of stuff. And that's in our common parlance now. It wasn't 10 years ago. Yeah, it wasn't. And so it's really nice to see that massive cultural shift where we're trying to be more inclusive. We're trying to be better. For those of you who don't know, I'm a very privileged, upper middle class, white guy from New England, and I fail all the time. So it's about trying again and trying better over and over again. Yeah. Because what else can you do? I'm really excited about the work that you're doing. And you have so much that you've just mentioned and talked about with your training and with just the work that you're doing in general. What are you most excited about in, say, the next six months with work you're trying to do to help DEI work?
2: really excited about getting Microsoft engineers and others working on software excited about contributing to open source and being part of the positive evolution of that ecosystem. And that's in the many forms that take. So I love teaching and seeing that light kind of go off in people's eyes where they realize the opportunity and the responsibility, but in a good way. And so I'm really looking forward to the next six months to seeing a lot of those lights go off and also those connections between people. So, you know, that people, and especially this is hard in the pandemic, right? Like we're all on computers and we miss each other and creating ways to overcome that, that result in the types of things that we know can happen in open source when people come together. So I'm looking forward to creating that at Microsoft and through Microsoft. So like externally, like how do we enable that in others and continually try and steward the progress open source overall? There's lots of great people inside Microsoft already doing this. So I'm just happy. But if someone asked me 10 years ago by working for Microsoft, right, and open source, I'd be like, what? (laughs) Like, I really feel like Microsoft is serious about our influence in the ecosystem. And it's really, for me, just an honor to be on board with that vision right now.
3: You could see the impact that they're having. It's not just like some marketing and PR fluff. Microsoft has made unbelievable investments in the community. Let me just bring up VS Code and how amazing it is and how much it has changed my way of just developing websites. I'm not going to say I'm a developer, just a little tiny hacker. But anyway, it's just the ecosystem in VS Code and the way that folks have created these unbelievable extensions that have made millions of lives better. And I think that is just the culture that was bred and continue to be bred. So props to Microsoft.
2: One of the other interesting things I've been learning recently as part of the FOSS fund, as I mentioned, we people nominate projects that they use or that they know they use. But there's also an element of use that's and like needs to be discovered. So we have a component governance database basically that tells us the, the components that we use. It's part of a compliance piece. But I've been querying that to see what open source projects are we using that we should also just include in the nomination thing that might not be on someone's radar. I'm yeah. starting to see, oh we're using that. Oh, it looks like we hired the maintainer, right? Like Microsoft is also walking the walk as far as funding and that we're clearly looking to support maintainers through funding, but also let's pay this person to work on this thing we use. And I've been discovering that through my journeys through some of the use code, which I think, I don't know, is also kind of a positive thing from Microsoft that
3: I think is cool. Hearing that is just so great because since they are such a big leader Other companies are going to follow those steps, other conglomerates, if that's the right word to use. (laughs) But no, I mean, I think it's important that you coming on this podcast and discussing that and getting the word out to kind of other companies in the Fortune 100 have to up their game if they want to be considered a good steward of the open source community.
2: Yeah, I hope so. I hope that we can lead by example.
3: You keep doing what you do, Emma.
2: Thank you.
0: Is that code open source that you're talking about? The analyzer of dependencies?
2: I don't think so. I know there's a lot of intention to release the types of tools that we're using for governance for OSPO. So if it's not now, then chances are it will be in the
0: future. Love it. I know we've talked to people like Joel Wasserman from Flossbank and FaroSS and Back Your Stack. And this seems to be more and more of a regular theme where people are trying to just go down the stack and figure out who... Do I use what packages am I using? How can I contribute back? I love the idea of having a governance model of the dependency tree so you can see how many packages have been abandoned, BDFL, et cetera. I don't know if that's exists at the moment. That would be awesome.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It can help you think about funding, but also security risks.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And there's a risk working group with chaos. Um, That's what they call it, the risk WG, which is basically like, how do we think about our dependencies as a problem? (laughs) How do we solve this?
2: Cool. I'm, I'm over at the, the d working group at Chaos. I'm part of that pretty regularly.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of overlap between those groups. As a diversity group with Sustain as well. There's a dependency yep. mapping group with Sustain. So we're all kind of in the same small community trying to figure out how to make the world better. I'm really glad to have you on and to hear your stories about that. We are running into the thing that happens at the end of every one of these calls where the time is approaching, where we have to wrap up. So I've asked you what you're most excited about. What I now want to ask you is where can people follow you and your work as well as the Ospo work, but specifically you too?
2: Yeah, that's a, a bit of a tricky question right now because my domain was stolen. <laughs> and Medium no, like, is shutting God. down where my other... My, so there's a link that I had in our document to my current posts. I'm trying to figure out where to move my writing to, but right now it's on Medium. There's a link there. Also on Twitter. I'm chatty on Twitter in the chaos DNI working group. I'm often in the, the repo there. And yeah, that's all I can think of right now.
0: What's your Twitter account?
2: Sunny Developer, S-U-N-N-Y developer. It's a really old account. It's named after my dog, Sunny. And I was a developer at the time. It's not very clever. But then after a amount of time, you're like, oh, I guess I can't change it. So
0: I like it. I think it's great. It's <laughs> <laughs> adorable.
3: What's it a golden <laughs> retriever?
2: She's um, a Westie cross.
3: Oh, my sister has a golden retriever named Sunny, so Oh, really?
2: It's yeah. a good name.
3: <laughs> I agree.
2: I don't know about Twitter handles, but it's a good name for dog. Yeah. <laughs> so Sunny developer on Twitter, definitely reach out. I love talking about all this stuff and always looking for collaboration.
0: Awesome. And now's the point where we get to give back to previous things. So, this is spotlight. This is the part of the show where we reference projects which Either need love or have helped us up, or we just think really deserve a bit of time in the spotlight. so Justin, what is your spotlight today?
3: My spotlight today is Fiverr, and we have Fiverr business at replays and we hire developers to work on open source projects like our migration to Jekyll. It's been a, a journey, but we're finally wrapping up on that and Fiver's a great platform if you need things fixed or created. So, yeah.
0: Thanks a lot. Eric Berry, what is your project today? One of the things
1: that I've been using lately, which I have really have enjoyed, is uh, a tool called Gitpod, gitpo io. It will allow you to set up a couple of files within your open source project. And then anytime somebody wants to contribute to it, all they need to do is click a button, and it'll launch an online IDE where they can just work on it right there so the ability for open source projects to become very easily contributed to is being made much more possible through this tool and i'm a big fan of it and they are open source go to gitpod.io
0: great my spotlight today is gist github has made this thing called gist made it a while ago and it's not open source github isn't open source shame on you github shame but I really like the GIST functionality and I've used it a lot to share code with other people. And I like the idea that you don't have to go make an entire repo to share like a line of code. So that's just been something that's actually really helped me out. So the developers who made that, you are awesome.
3: Confession, I use GIST on the daily. So thank you, GitHub, for maintaining it.
0: Emma, what is your spotlight today?
2: So I decided to just go back with one that inspired me and got me into open source, which is the Drupal project. So when I was a,
0: yeah.
2: a developer and I call it out because it was a big aha moment for me in open source because it made, I once wrote an entire content management system and I know how buggy that's going to be. <laughs> and I know how much that cost back in the day and that it was very exclusive to companies that had a lot of money. And when Drupal came out, it started to make that type of website accessible to nonprofits. And I just, the, for me, that was kind of the beginning of the hook into the what I could do with open source and also where I could go to learn things outside of my job. And so I definitely credit the the Drupal project with giving me that vision for what was possible
0: through open source. Drupal is awesome. Drupal has definitely been really instructive for me as well. And uh, I talk to Rachel all the time, uh, Rachel Lawson, who like helps yep. run the community there. And yeah. so super great people at Drupal. They're the best. Emma, it was great to have you. Thank you so much for joining this podcast. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. And hopefully in the future, we won't have to do as much DNI work with such amount of but much more. Just, <laughs> yeah, that's just what we do. So Yeah. Yeah. We'll totally. to all be sunny developers.
2: It was lovely to meet you all. What a great group. Thank you.